0: This podcast is brought to you by Minimal Productions. Producer Jim Menz.
1: Bail is refused. You're out of order! If it pleases the court. To adopt this affirmation, please say the words I do. I do. Nothing further from this. One. Given the serious nature of this offence,
0: this case is dismissed.
1: Welcome to The weeks I'm Jim Minns. In this Extras episode of The Wigs, Emmanuel Kirkasharian has a fascinating discussion with Professor Edward Santo about human rights, technology, and artificial intelligence. The wide ranging discussion touches on the RoboDebt saga, responsibility for algorithmic decision-making, algorithmic deference, and the need for the legal profession to understand more about statistics and computers as we progress into a new technological epoch. Edward Santo was Human Rights Commissioner at the Australian Human Rights Commission from August 2016 to 28th of July 2021. And since September 2021, Ed has been at the University of Technology,
0: Sydney as industry professor, responsible technology. Professor Ed Santo, thank you so much for joining me on the wigs today. It's great to be with you. Um, it's it's fantastic to have you on and um, there are literally so many things that I'd love to pick your brain about, uh, both in terms of your former role as Human Rights Commissioner and also in your current role. Uh, but I think today we're going to focus mainly on on human rights and technology and um, the report in particular and the aspect and things that sort of arise and we can discuss after, arising from that report. So um, when you, you this year, as Human Rights Commissioner released a report titled Human Rights and Technology?
1: That's correct, yeah.
0: Yeah, so can you tell us a bit about that? What was the background to that? And, and sort of what what did you end up finding?
1: Well, we could see, um, there's no great insight here, I hasten to say, but we could see how artificial intelligence and other new technologies were reshaping the world we're living in right now. Um, the, uh, the description that Klaus Schwab gave this time is, uh, is the fourth industrial revolution. Um, it's a pretty hyperbolic term, uh, but it's true. Um, there's never been a time in history um, that has seen such unprecedented change in almost every way we live our lives. Um, from the way we work, uh, the way we communicate, interact, um, our politics, of course, as well. And those things are driven by new tech and particularly AI. Uh, We'd seen that change happening, um, but it was apparent that no organisation, government or otherwise had done a really deep dive um, to explore what are the human rights and social implications of that change. And so um, we tried to step into that breach.
0: Yeah, and so so there was no sort of reference from anybody. It was something that you identified and sort of thought, we'll have a look into this.
1: Yeah, that's right. So the commission um, traditionally does sort of about a, an eighty twenty split. Eighty percent of our work is responsive. You know, the government may propose a new bill. Um, dealing with refugee issues or whatever it happens to be, and we'll we'll contribute to that process, we'll provide our views and our expertise and so on. Um, But uh, some of the most impactful work that the Commission has done historically has been where we have kind of um, sought to understand an issue that perhaps is not part of the day-to-day public debate, Mm -hmm. um, provide some framing for it, and then propose a way forward that, that upholds human rights.
0: Yeah, I mean, I have to say, having reread the report again <clears throat> today, it's such an excellent sort of introduction into thinking about so many aspects of this. What is really an enormous matter, and I know that you focused mainly on um, decision making by AI, but even in even in the context of that, there are so many issues that to think about, and um, I, I find that fascinating. So I commend to our listeners the report, and, and we'll put a link in for people to listen to to have a read of it. Um, I won't make I won't make you recount sort of what the recommendations were but one of them was that an AI safety commissioner I think that's the terms of it be appointed Um, do you know if there's any movement on that has there been is it too early for a government response or
1: yeah I mean typically uh, the government takes um, a while to respond to Human Rights Commission reports Um, famously uh, my Now, former colleague, Kate Jenkins, um, with her respected work report on sexual harassment and Mm -hmm. sex discrimination in workplaces, um, it took about, uh, depending on how you calculate it, 15 to 18 months for a government response, and then legislation has only um, recently been um, through parliament. So, um, you know, we're not holding our breath. Having said that, We've already had really positive input, uh, for example, from the New South Wales government saying they're very interested in a lot of these recommendations as well, including the, the idea of an AI safety commissioner. There's clearly a need. At some point, it will happen. The yeah. sooner it happens, the better, because what uh, we're proposing there is someone who can really take charge of um, policy in, uh, in respect of AI Um, and do so in a way that puts people at the centre and makes sure that people's basic rights are upheld.
0: Yeah. I I actually went looking to see, you know, just with a little bit of Googling to see what if any sort of government agencies are looking into this sort of thing. And one of the things I came across is this organisation, this government um, entity called BETA, which is, I can't remember what it stands for, but it's within the... Commonwealth Government, and it's there sort of employing that sort of nudge dynamic and teaching the government how to engage in nudging, which was both fascinating and frightening on some level. Um, Yeah,
1: yeah, Yeah, Um, the first unit um, there was uh, famously um, in the UK, uh, Mm. and um, they called it the nudge unit, as you say, Mm. and uh, that was under Tony Blair's prime ministership, and it's been quite popular in other countries as well. Um, The first one here in Australia was in New South Wales. Um, And, yeah, you're right that it's partly about behavioral economics. That's where the B and the E come from. um, And it's partly also now about how you can use technology. So it's that kind of combination of behavioral economics and nudging and using tech to kind of supercharge the impact of those insights about psychology.
0: Yeah, and for those who don't know what we're talking about, I think there was a book that came out called Nudge that um, explained through behavioural economic or in behavioural economic terms on how to push people to making certain decisions and includes things like just the simple design of forms to kind of push yeah. and clicking the right, the quite unquote right uh, choice on the form um, it's interesting stuff uh, but you you decided to focus on the report in, in decision making and AI um, that's the focus so, so sort of where is where is today? Where are we finding in government decision making for starters, AI being used? Is it is it sort of being deployed everywhere? What what sort of examples can you give?
1: Not everywhere, and it's important to remember that there's a bit of a spectrum, right? So there are decisions that are wholly automated, uh, possibly using quite sophisticated forms of AI, um, or not. Um, And they're at one end of the spectrum. Then there's the kind of human sitting down with an abacus um, and pretty much nothing else, uh, the really conventional decision, but there's a whole range in between. Mm -hmm. And increasingly what we're seeing is that there will be a human decision maker, but she or he will rely more and more on um, data points that will be generated using AI. Um, So perhaps the best known example, though, uh, at the federal level, was what came to be known as robo debt Uh, and um, that's i think a really important case study to kind of consider because we need to learn the lessons from that um that whole situation Uh, so um you know what what the government um set out to do um if i may be a little controversial about this yeah was you know typical like that's pretty orthodox thing right so the government said well you know we we pay social entitlements to people um, who are eligible um, via our welfare system. Some people will receive more than they're entitled to. And so um, we need to identify who owes the government money and specifically, let's see if we can find an efficient way of getting that money back. So in terms of that overarching objective, um, we would say there's nothing wrong with that, um, provided it's done fairly and so on. the problem came about was was really um in the operationalization of that idea and uh that that really was a touchstone for us because we could see that the the way that that system was developed an automated system of identifying who owes the government money and how much um and then you know the the communications with with individuals um was automated as well Mm -hmm. meant that um it was there were a number of weak points. Um, as it turns out, um, the the system was very prone to error. So large numbers of people received debt notices when in fact they did not owe the government money. But yeah. secondly, there were real um, um, kind of breaks in the process for accountability. So mm-hmm. if you wrongly received a debt, or at least you, you felt um, that it was possibly wrongly calculated, uh, there was no easy way of getting the government to explain to you how it came up with this conclusion. Um, it was a bit like a computer says no scenario, yeah. where um, all the government was really able to say uh, was that you you owe the government this sum of money, not mm. um, the true basis for that, and that that really eats away at fundamental principles like the rule of law.
0: Yeah. It's um it's interesting, isn't it? Because on, if you look at it, with a, many computer programs have bugs in it. If you think about it, just as sort of there was a bug in this program, and the result of the bug was that people were issued these quite stern debt notices. That's something that's quite frightening. Um, and in terms of the accountability, we can sort of break that down, can't we? There's there's sort of there's accountability for the actual coding and what's gone into that but then there's actual accountability for the decision-making. So someone has decided to send out a letter, um, albeit in this way, the computer has decided in effect to send out the letter. So it's like, how do you unpack all of that? And so um, I suppose there's no ready answers to those sorts of questions at the moment. And that's the sort of thing we need to be thinking about. Look, I I
1: actually think it is less complicated perhaps (laughs) than we've been led to believe. It really comes down to uh, three key principles and we we ended up doing one of the most extensive consultations anywhere in the world on Mm. AI and what it means to ordinary people. Um, And what they kept on saying again and again is that they want um, decisions using AI to be fair, to be accurate and to be accountable. Mm. Those three principles, fairness, accuracy, and accountability, they've got nothing to do with tech. (laughs) (laughs) They're they're principles that kind of underlie any liberal democracy, that that's Mm. how decisions are made, particularly by government. And so if you had that right at the very centre of how you designed and then um, delivered the the system to uh, recover debts, we probably wouldn't be kind of in this position now um, And I say that because the, these things are ultimately design choices. Mm. Um, it's, uh, you know, um, it's not uncommon, as you say, for uh, a computer system to have a bug in it or to develop a bug as it operates. Um, mm. So no one should be hanged for that, um, but you do have to have a, a kind of an oversight mechanism that will um, be able to identify that problem before it metastasizes and will allow you to deliver kind of individualised justice to people who have been kind of wrongly harmed um, and also to fix uh, the problem at the systemic level.
0: When you say it's not a technological problem, I mean, it may not have been in robo debt, but I'm sort of thinking about machine learning and circumstances where we don't know why the algorithms are doing what they're doing. That poses a problem in terms of transparency and and looking over and checking, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So,
1: so, RoboDebt was just an algorithm that was applied kind of universally across a large number of people. Um, but machine learning is a bit different. You're absolutely right. Um, so, uh, machine learning is really a $3 term, um, that we previously might've called pattern recognition. Mm. Um, and, uh, what, um, essentially you're doing is you're training a powerful computer with a whole bunch of um, kind of previous decisions that you categorize. So um, let, let, let's say we're talking about home loan decisions. Um, <clears throat> if you're a bank, you'll say, okay, here's a bucket of decisions, which, um, you know, 30 years on we've decided we're pretty good decisions. We were right to lend, you know, money to this particular person, to their home loan. And here's a second bucket, which we now consider to be bad decisions. Um, the, the individuals didn't pay the money back or it was incredibly difficult to, to get them to make the payments. And so you, you just feed the system all of those decisions with those, with those labels. Those labels are really crucial, right? These yeah. are the good ones. This is what a good decision looks like. This is what a bad decision looks like. And what we're able to do now using those systems <clears throat> is we're able to say, you find you the computer find the patterns, find the features that commonly uh, appear when you're when you've got a good customer, and similarly, what are the patterns that appear when you've got a bad customer? Now, um, so far so good, right? Mm. But I think what you're adverting to is that commonly all of that takes place in a black box, wow. and so some of those patterns. Um, which are which are really just kind of you know inductive inferences maybe white noise right um, and maybe irrelevant um, and indeed harmful factors to take into account but unless you can bring those factors to the fore and really scrutinize them you can't see whether the system is going wrong and that's how you end up going to enormous scale really quickly using an AI or machine learning system that has gone off the rails. But but ultimately, that's a design choice. It's um, cheaper, usually, to have mm-hmm. a black box system that doesn't kind of yield an explanation for um, the recommendations or decisions that it, that it pumps out. Mm-hmm. But it's always possible to design it differently so that it can yield an explanation, so it can point to the specific patterns that it is, um, uh, kind of discerned as being especially significant in determining whether in the hypothetical I gave, someone is a good, likely to be a good customer or a bad customer.
0: Yeah. I mean, it, it, you can sort of imagine quite readily that factors that appear to be completely irrelevant might be masking some previous discriminatory behavior we didn't like sort of the dark skinned people who lived in this postcode. So they're the, they're the people we put in the bad category historically. Yeah, And all of a sudden the computer's picking that up without telling you that that's what it's doing.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's a particularly infamous example that anyone who's done research in this area kind of has, has heard about ad nauseam. Yeah. Um, and it's from, from the justice system in the U S so, um, the 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 problem that they started with is a common problem in lots of jurisdictions Uh, the the problem is essentially that um, if you're making a decision about whether to grant someone bail or if they're convicted um, what should be their length of sentence that's incredibly difficult you're essentially predicting something about that individual and predicting human behavior is notoriously difficult as we all kind of know just in our ordinary lives mm. um, it is especially difficult to predict criminal behavior so judges don't really like making those decisions they find it incredibly difficult to make um, decisions about bail and about sentencing so um, what uh, a number of US states did um, was that uh, they they worked with a with a company to develop um, a, a machine learning system um, became known as compass. Um, Compass, C-O-M-P-A-S. It was an acronym. Anyway, mm. uh, the the point is that they they did exactly what I described before. They fed the system as many previous decisions as they could find, um, and what the what the system kind of learned was that um, people with dark skin, especially African Americans, were more likely to commit crimes. Um, and 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 for precisely the reason that you gave, Emmanuel, that that's not the case, right? Um, yeah. Historically, we know, and perhaps in the present as well, African-American people far more likely to have been subjected to over-policing, indeed to uh, discriminatory policing. Um, They've been much more likely to be convicted by all white juries, all of the kinds of things that that make it much more likely for them to be kind of the victim of injustice. And so what the system ended up doing, as I said, was um, identifying um, African-American people as being more likely to commit crime. Um, and so the, the results of the decisions that were being pumped out through that system uh, were were far, far harsher for African-Americans. In fact, twice as harsh for African-Americans um, as uh, compared with other members of the American community.
0: Mm. And, it's interesting. and so in, in that circumstance, the judges were just doing what effectively that they were required, were they, to do what they were told by the algorithm, in effect.
1: I mean, they could... Um, you know, look past the algorithm at other evidence, um, and mm-hmm. some did. Uh, but um, it's kind of the allure of, you know, computer intelligence, right? That is quite difficult for us to withstand. And mm-hmm. um, again, without wanting to be sort of too hyperbolic about it, it's it's a big anthropological problem, because mm-hmm. if you think about the starting point of that story, it was an accurate recognition on the part of. Uh, judges that these are difficult decisions for humans to make. Um, Mm -hmm. Human judges don't like um, making bail decisions because part of that is about saying, well, is this person likely to re-offend or offend for the first time um, when they're out in the community pending their trial? Um, Who knows? (laughs) And so that makes us particularly susceptible to a bit of tech magic that says, hey, don't worry, the computer will answer that for you. Um, again, there's a, there's a kind of a, a $3 term for this phenomenon. It's, it's known as algorithmic deference. It's basically where we um, are kind of conscious of our own kind of intellectual limitations, and we decide, oh, gosh, well then, because I'm so bad at this decision, this computer must be better at it. Um, and that's not necessarily the case. It may be that the computer's even worse <laughs> than us yeah. as a human.
0: It's, it's I, I'm just, while you, while you were saying that, I just had McCarian, sort of the classic high court case about sentencing that says, you shall not use mathematics in sentencing. This is not, you deduct a little bit for X factor and you add a little bit for Y factor. Actually, it's just an instinctive synthesis that the judge brings to the sentencing process, almost as if the judge becomes the black box. Yeah. but perhaps we're a little bit as in humans are a little bit more complicated in what goes into their black box thinking than the algorithms are um and a bit more able to recognize the humanity of what they're doing at least we fantasize that. Um, as I look, about it, you know I, I think there's some
1: truth to that um it's certainly true that um ai particularly machine learning type ai is particularly good at making essentially. Binary decisions, decisions that that are either factually right or factually wrong, Um, Mm -hmm. mathematical decisions, for example. Um, By contrast, uh, polycentric decisions where um, you're deciding between a variety of options, none of which is um, objectively right or wrong typically humans are better at that sort of polycentric decision making but not every human is particularly good at it (laughs) Uh, but but generally that that plays to our strengths Um, Mm. and so uh, you're right um there are some advantages that we as humans have um but but i don't think we should kind of you know in the battle between humans and ai (laughs) i don't think we should kind of kid ourselves that we're we're amazing at that Um, and um and that's why we should be wary about computers entering that space.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's sort of telling, telling the future or having, you know, thinking you can see the future. I, I hope at least that the common law recognised for a long time that it wasn't really able to do that and we were guessing. I worry that we're losing that kind of knowledge. Um, one of the things that we discussed offline was sort of how uh, statistics are being used in high-risk offender matters. To kind of gauge the risk of offenders um, engaging in high in serious offences into the future, um, I want. Perhaps you can give a little. You can talk a little bit about that. How that's used.
1: Yeah, I mean, look, um, there are sort of two fundamental threshold questions. The, the first is, if you're doing a piece of research um, to better understand a phenomenon. That that sort of statistical analysis, um, on its face, can be hugely useful. Um, By contrast, if you're doing, um, if you're using that sort of statistical analysis in order to predict future human behaviour, then you've you've got to be incredibly wary. Uh, And um, I mean, you know, the the bald truth uh, is that. Humans are bad at predicting future criminal behaviour, and so are computers. Um, But what worries me is that um, we've we've now got a range of legislation that says um, the court must predict future criminal behaviour. And on the basis of that prediction, um, it must decide whether to detain an individual, potentially forever, Based on you know that assessment of the likelihood that they will commit a crime. Now, if you're using those sort of statistics, you've got to be able to show, um, at the bare minimum, um, that that at least your analysis is accurate. Um, and the truth is that that those those systems just don't work very well. The the most um, recent uh, kind of accuracy rating I've I've seen um, mm-hmm. of the Vera Two R system, which is the system that's used for assessing um, future criminal behaviour by um, uh, uh, terrorist offenders, people who have been com- convicted of terrorist offences, is that it's got an accuracy rating of fifty yeah. percent, which is bloody, useless, right? Like it's mm-hmm. um, save the money on Vera two r and just flip a coin uh, yeah. because it won't be any more accurate.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I do a fair bit in this space, both in the terrorist and the other sorts of high-risk offender spaces. and I have been pressing to even get access to the data sets that have been used, or at least a description of the algorithm that's been applied in these things. And it's never forthcoming. And notwithstanding that, judges are still admitting the evidence, despite really not having an understanding of what's underlying it, which is astonishing when you consider expert evidence you know, needing to justify how we got to the opinion that is being expressed now there are certain provisions that may or may not be permitting that evidence to be received depending on one's point of view but it's pretty concerning when what you've got is a mathematic a quote unquote sort of algorithmic mathematical scientific state scientific statement saying x i imagine it's quite hard for the judges to push back against that even in their own minds um, let alone as sort of a justified public policy to say this person is not a risk when, you know, computer says they are.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the really um, invidious position that this sort of legislation puts judges in is essentially this uh, they have evidence, which, as you've described, um, can barely be described as evidence. It, it's, there's a big question in my, mar, my mind about whether any of this should be admissible. But anyway, there is evidence that is sought to be adduced um, that purports to assess the risk of future criminal behaviour. Um, secondly, um, the judge would know that uh, there is very little other evidence um, that is, you know, relevant, let alone probative. Um, And then thirdly, they have the terrible situation, which is that um, if that individual does subsequently go out and commit uh, crime, terrorist offence, sexual offence, whatever it happens to be, um, ultimately um, there there could be, you know, blame that is is cast at the feet of the judge. And Mm -hmm. so I could understand a judge sort of deciding for themselves, well, look, it's better um, that um, that I lock the person up. And uh, that's the, the less risky option, uh, even though that flies in the face of, of literally centuries of the best of our legal tradition, which is um, that, you know, uh, is better that uh, a guilty person um, go free, or in fact to 10 guilty people go free, rather than an innocent person being locked up.
0: I mean, it's almost inevitable. If, if judges let out even the occasional person whom the state is seeking to lock up as a risk one of those people will inevitably commit an offense and that's going to come back because we're not talking about no risk there's no, there's no yeah. thing without any risk so it must be exactly. so hard to sit as a judge on these and um, you know we I, I sit there as sort of advocate on behalf or counsel on behalf of the uh, defendants often and pushing pretty hard but the judges push back because i feel like you know they're sort of stuck between a rock and a hard place but
1: i I agree but there is a bigger picture right because i guess the corollary of what you've just said is that everyone is a risk i mean look you know let's take Mm -hmm. violent crime um the vast majority of violent crime is committed by men um between the ages of 15 and 75 um we probably should lock them all up if we if we genuinely have zero tolerance of violent crime lock all of us up (laughs) i'm Hmm. certainly in that category um and uh you know that that that's that that'll unquestionably reduce the total amount of violent crime Um, the problem is it's a completely disproportionate response to the problem it's not well adapted to the problem at all and i would say neither is that legislation so uh, I, I hope that more judges will have the courage um, and and integrity to say, I'm not responsible for the failure of the crown to adduce probative, um, persuasive evidence on on this issue, and so if the judge if the, if the crown doesn't do that, um, then. Uh, Judges should not lock up people on the basis of, of, of evidence that just just doesn't stack up.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, and my and my hope is that, and you know, I'm working on this sort of thing is is trying to actually exclude that evidence that puts them in such an invidious position because it's not fair, I think, for a court to be weighed over with this sort of faux science that that really. Yeah, yeah I don't think that's fair to the judges. Uh, okay. But it's it's interesting, isn't it? There's sort of. This kind of trying to predict the future um, is starting to be pervasive in all aspects of decision making, particularly in government, um, but also I think in the in the private sector. Um, do you think that's been driven by the technology? Look, we've always sought to predict the future. Yeah, um, that's right, you that's right.
1: know, yeah, for thousands of years, um, certainly hundreds of years. Uh, you've got prognostications about the weather, um, and we make some pretty big decisions about even such a thing as as the weather. We're we're still not, you know, that good at it. We're better than we used to be. Um, Mm -hmm. And we certainly have methods now um, that are um, more rational and more effective than kind of looking at the entrails of a chicken um, to determine the likelihood of it raining tomorrow. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and so so we're we're kind of treading more in that direction. Um, The the big change technologically is we have uh, I guess, the accumulated wisdom of what does and doesn't work. Um, mm-hmm. And so the more data you can throw at this rate, you know, relevant data that you can throw at this, the more likely you're going to come up with an accurate prediction. And then the computational power. Um, so, you know, if you say sort of 50 years ago before the rise of, of modern AI, um, if you were trying to make a prediction about, let's say, an insurance prediction, because that's all about prediction as well, um, yeah. about whether Um, someone like me was going to um, kind of break their leg at some point in their life. Um, Probably could have identified all of the relevant factors and you could have pointed to all of the relevant data sources, but there was no way of sifting through that huge amount of data. That is changing really quickly. So we're seeing this exponential growth over um, decades now of computational power such that, you know, the smartphone that most people uh, have in their pocket um, is literally uh, more than a million times more powerful than the computer that took us took Apollo 11 to the moon, um, and so our ability to sift through all of that data is, is really supercharging our capacity to make predictions.
0: Yeah. Although I, I'm a I'm a big uh, reader of Nicholas Taleb, the the guy who wrote *Antifragile*, and I'm always conscious of his points of view on on statistics and. And using computational power to to sift through data only to find things that really aren't there and sort of we're applying all of this stuff without understanding what might be called the basic underpinnings of statistics uh, and that sort of reasoning actuarial reasoning and I just I kind of fear that what we've got with this technology is it looks like we're doing something really smart and important, but without the—if you don't have the human brains thinking about it behind it—then we might not be. Yeah,
1: that's right, and that's really one of the biggest um, kind of challenges to us as humans that AI brings, because—and um, this is really this sounds like a philosophical question. But it is hugely practical, and it's very rarely spoken about. So um, we we know as lawyers that we, we tend to prize deductive reasoning above all else. Um, mm. If um, well, let's not make it about a legal problem. Let, let, let's pretend we're talking about medicine, right? And we're in the middle of a pandemic, so we're talking about medicine all the time. So we have a particular kind of chemical compound, and it seems to make people. Better if they have a particular illness, right? So, mm. compound ingested, illness goes away. Um, now, um, what I'm describing there is inductive reasoning. There seems to be an association between having this particular compound and getting better, um, and that has nothing to do with me being able to say um, here is the reason why if you eat this compound you will get better. So, what 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 we've always done in that sort of situation. Is, is we've approached the problem from two ends. The first end, which is the most kind of important end, is we've tried to understand why. What is it chemically about this particular compound that um, kind of uh, uh, causes the illness um, at a chemical level to essentially go away? Um, mm-hmm. How does the compound attack um, the illness? Um, and sometimes we, we know the answer to that question Um, when we know when we know the answer to that question that's a very very powerful piece of information but much of the time we don't so we take it from a different angle and we say well let's test how strong that association is and so when we do you know blind trials with you know hundreds thousands sometimes even more than that of of patients then we're we're testing to see whether that association between ingesting that particular compound and getting better um, uh, truly um holds out and uh, and so, so, ultimately, you can have um, a medicine go to market, even when you don't know the reason why it um, is, is effective, because you've really, really tested it carefully, um, you've looked at it from every different angle, and you can say, well, look, it really seems to work in pretty much every case, um, and it doesn't seem to have intolerable side effects. Um, Now, what AI is doing is that it's throwing up all of these associations all the time, right? And what we should be doing is testing them to to work out whether the association is meaningful, if it really suggests, you know, that X causes Y, or whether it's just white noise, because the vast, vast majority of these associations are completely irrelevant. They're Mm. completely white noise. But we're becoming more and more reliant. If the AI is suggesting that this association is meaningful, we tend to just grasp at that. And I think that's a huge danger to us as humans because um, we can become um, unable to understand um, the world around us and and how how we make decisions. Um, Mm -hmm. And it makes us very vulnerable if one of those associations that we think is is meaningful, turns out to be not so.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I, looked, I, I was thinking about sort of where modelling and, and mathematics are used by decision makers in courts in preparation for this interview. And I, it occurred to me, you know, almost everything that's done in terms of economic law now, here I'm thinking sort of competition and consumer law, that kind of thing, um, a lot of the class actions around shareholders, that sort of thing. All of those things rely on modelling done by experts that really aren't unpacked in the course of the judgments and and you know, I don't know how much they're unpacked in the course of cross examination of those experts, but it seems to me that modelling in particular and this kind of thinking is becoming pervasive and maybe judges don't know the maths and don't know the you know, don't have the philosophical underpinnings almost to kind of dig in, dig into this sort of thing. Is there anybody doing anything about that? I mean, short of us barristers teaching ourselves, which is what I think we should be doing to help teach the judges. Is there anything else going on? Look, I think there are sort of three key things here. Um, The first is that
1: our adversarial system is meant to be able to kind of um, use that process of dialectic to get at the truth. So, um, in a situation you kind of outlined, um, you have a, a, an expert, um, who presents a model and let's say that the model is, is deeply flawed. Um, you should have, um, that, um, kind of process of, of adversarialism mean that there is a competing expert, um, or, you know, as happens more frequently these days, you have, I hate this term, but you have like the kind of expert witness, uh, hot tub, um, where they all get in together and they um, you know obviously keep their clothes on for the benefit of any uh, non-lawyers listening um, but the, but they really kind of duke it out between them um, mm. to kind of get to some um, something that approximates the truth um, so in other words each um, of the competing experts uh, is, is there to kind of poke holes in the theory um, which is being proposed and that's all a model is um, mm. uh, and, and, and so that you can, you can see the weak points. And then ultimately you have the lawyers and the judge who it, you would hope is well placed to make an accurate assessment as to which expert should be believed. And so you don't need necessarily to have a deep technical knowledge of the subject matter to be able to make that assessment. Um, so that's mm. that's straining, that's really straining that, that system at the moment. Um, but it, but, it, but it exists and I think fundamentally um, it's a pretty good starting point. Um, the, the, the second point um, is really important because um, it kind of uh, it's a, it's, a, it's a sort of an asterisk to what I just said very quickly a moment ago, and that is you don't need to be an expert. Not everyone is you know in order to kind of navigate the twenty first century is going to need to have a PhD in data science and all of the technical skills associated with AI. But if I can maybe provide another analogy. We know that that whether or not you want to ever drive a car um, just to kind of get about in the city, you're going to need to know a few things about cars. Um, Mm -hmm. One of which is um, that they're they're much stronger than we are. Um, So there's no benefit in kind of merrily dancing down uh, George Street in Sydney, um, because if a car hits you, um, that's, that's lights out, right? So you, 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 we all have to learn a, you know, some basic things about the world around us. Now, AI is increasingly going to be how the world around us works. Um, and so we're going to need all of us to have a basic understanding of that in order to understand the world around us. So there will need to be some skilling up, um, including in the legal profession about um, those kind of basic building blocks of AI. And then the third element to my mind is that um, if you're making decisions using AI, then you need more knowledge than that. It's not mm-hmm. gonna be the, the knowledge of a pedestrian. It's gonna be the knowledge of, of kind of a motor mechanic in the analogy with the car. Uh, because what you're really gonna to need to do is to know um, where, where you're gonna to have to um, kick the tires. Um, I'm, I'm really stretching this metaphor a bit now. Yeah. But you, you, you'll need to know when you can trust um, uh, a data point that has been generated by AI because of the nature of the activity that it, it was doing, and when you should be much more sceptical and, s- s- you know, have it kind of subjected to, uh, subject it, subjected to, I guess, uh, kind of closer scrutiny. Um, and so, so those three principles I think are very important for the legal profession in kind of managing this epochal transition to a world of AI. Yeah. I-
0: it's interesting because I, I'm finding increasingly that sort of debate between experts before a court, be it in the quite-unquite quite hot tub or just in the old-fashioned cross-examination way, is sort of undermined by the fact that the experts are using models that are accepted, and they don't necessarily understand, yeah. they don't understand the models. So the evidence given to the court exactly. is, well, this is, the, this is the best model, but this is what we take from it, and this is what we take from it. And what's missed is that debate about, you know, actually does this model work? And I just, great I point. Wondered, yeah, sorry, go. No, no, I was just gonna say, it's a great point. It's a great point. And we've we've seen this
1: time and again in the legal system, haven't we? So, um, you know, the US had this much worse than we did, but there was a, a period in the United States where um, there was uh, this faith that was put in the kind of traditional, um, in inverted commas, uh, lie detector to that that machine, the lie detector machine. Um, I can't remember exactly how long it was, but it was about 20 years where you could adduce evidence derived from uh, a lie detector machine. And it was generally regarded as a pretty accurate representation of whether or not someone was lying. Um, And that was just ground truth. And you'd have experts sort of playing around the edges in, in, in interpreting the kind of outputs of the machine. But um, the vast majority of those experts weren't kind of fundamentally challenging the validity of the machine at all. And then it turns out, you know, there was some really groundbreaking research that was done that said, look, basically, you know, lie detectors are completely unreliable. They're just, it's yes. just, it's just evidence that it shouldn't be induced at all. And, um, and so that then kind of was a, 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 a crisis point in the criminal justice system, especially in the US, where it had been most widely used. And so the underlying technology itself um, was called into question. And so you're right, we're we're probably at danger of, greater danger of, of that, because there's so much sort of technology that is, you know, kind of supposition built on supposition. And if you pull out any of the basal suppositions, then quite a lot can come tumbling down.
0: Ed, that was fantastic. Um, Thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate your time and um, look forward to perhaps discussing topics like this in the future. Uh, But thank you so much. It was an absolute pleasure chatting with you. Thanks for listening. Please like The Wigs on Facebook at... The Wigs podcast. Don't forget to rate and review on iTunes. This podcast was brought to you by Minimal Productions, produced by Jim Mintz.